If you'd like to keep that uh, reading open in front of you, we're going to have a look at it over the next uh, few minutes. Let me pray for us as we venture into um, perhaps the unfamiliar terrain of uh, Leviticus. Lord God, we thank you that your words, uh, all your words, is from you. It is God-breathed, and it's useful for correcting, rebuking, instructing, and training us in righteousness. Uh, We thank you that all your word shows us you. It teaches us of what you've done for us, and what you continue to do for us, and what you will do. And we pray this morning, as we consider this passage from Leviticus, that you'd help me to speak clearly, and that we would see you, and love you more and more. Amen. Well, who doesn't enjoy a good party? We had a good party, didn't we, on Friday, if you were able to join us. Uh, Whether it's New Year's, whether it's a retirement, whether it's uh, a wedding, uh, all of us enjoy celebrating uh, important events. Uh, It was the same for ancient Israel as well. They were no different to us in that sense. Uh, They had lots of special days, sort of red-letter days you might describe them, in their calendar Uh, where they would set aside sort of regular life and come to celebrate. Uh, And and this chapter in Leviticus is uh, is one of those chapters which explains some of them. It all seems a bit remote to us, uh, but I think we're going to find that there's more uh, more to it uh, than we might think. Uh, I don't really know who who sort of sets our special days most of the time. Probably it's civil servants, isn't it? Or perhaps card companies, if we're being a little bit uh, cynical. But uh, for Israel... The person who set their special days uh, was none other than God. I didn't ask Mark to read this because we had quite a long reading already, but if you flick back to uh, verse 2, you can see that, can't you? Uh, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals. The appointed festivals of the Lord." Uh, God told the Israelites that they had to celebrate these days. They set them apart as special days to remember what he'd done for them and to look ahead to what he was going to do in the future as well. Uh, They had a teaching function, if we want to put it like that. They taught the people that they were God's and he was theirs. And in the middle of this chapter of uh, special festival days, there are these two harvest festivals that we uh, we had read for us uh, by Mark. Uh, And I want to look at them as we celebrate our own harvest festival. And I want to look at them in the light of all of the scripture and uh, and see what they tell us about ourselves and more critically about God and what he has done for us. So let's dive in, shall we, and look at this uh, first Harvest Festival, which is the First Fruits Harvest Festival. And you can see it, can't you, from um, verse 9. And I think the First Fruits Harvest Festival tells us that God claims. God claims. Uh, the first uh, harvest that God decrees for Israel to keep is this First Fruits Harvest. And he explains for us what they were to do. On the Sunday of the the week of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, that's one of the other festivals, uh, the people were to take the first of the harvest crop to the priest. And he would then offer it to God uh, along with a burnt offering. You can read that, can't we, in verses 10 through to to 13. Uh, They had to do that. And only when they had uh, followed his instructions to the letter could they then enjoy the rest of the harvest for themselves, and start the party. It all seems a bit fussy, doesn't it, as we read through it? 
bit sort of nitpicky, a bit kind of uh, overly precise. But it's actually teaching God's people a really, really important lesson. They are learning that God is the source of all things. It's not Tesco. It's not Baal, if you were living back in those days. It is God. He's the one who provides for them. Uh, And by rights, the first of the crop, the freshest of the crop, the very best of the crop, belongs to him. This first fruits harvest festival shows us that God has claim on all that we have. It's his before it's ours. It's never really ours, to be honest. It's always his. And that's why he deserves uh, the best. Now, of course, our harvest festivals aren't quite the same as that. We don't live under the same period of uh, Bible time, Bible history, as the Israelites. We're not obligated to keep harvest festival in the same way that they are. But it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to choose to do. Uh, And I think there is a principle to honour, which we're doing uh, today. Uh, Just this week, I was uh, preparing for this sermon, and I came across this uh, this story, which I thought was quite good. Uh, Apparently, in in California, there was a fruit farmer who was very well known uh, for walking in his groves and orchards. He would spend hours sort of walking up and down. He had a, a vast plot of land. He'd walk up and down, and, uh, and uh, his uh, workers would see him doing that. And every so often, at the end of, he'd get to a sort of end of a row or something, row of trees, uh, he would pick some of the fruit and kneel down and pray. And, and once his, uh, one of his, his head, head, uh, head sort of uh, workers uh, went to him and said, you know, so why, why do you do this? You know, why, why do you keep stopping and, uh, and, and kneeling down? And his answer was, he said, uh, I realise that it's God's, ultimately. All I have is from him, and he deserves uh, the, uh, the best of that. I think he recognised that principle, didn't he, of the first fruits, harvest festival. He didn't have to, necessarily. There's nothing in God's word that uh, told him that he had to do a harvest festival in the same way of ancient Israel. Uh, but he recognised that principle, that God had claim on his crop it was his right. It was his right to use it as he saw fit. And that's partly what we're doing this morning. We're coming and we're recognising that God has first claim, first dibs, if you want to put it like that, on all that we have. I think by itself, that's an important principle, isn't it? It's worth grasping and being reminded of, in, particularly in our day and age when uh, things are very materialistic. But actually, there's a deeper truth to the First Fruits Harvest Festival when we look through scripture. St. Augustine, one of the great early church fathers, used to uh, say this, that the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And what he was saying is that what we're supposed to do as Christians is to read the Old Testament alongside the New Testament and vice versa. And they explain each other. It's a bit like if you're doing a uh, crossword puzzle or a Sudoku puzzle. Maybe you get stuck on uh, a little bit. If you keep going and try another bit, then often you'll find that doing another bit helps you to work out the next bit. And it's just like that with the Bible. If we get stuck on it, if we keep reading and keep working it out, uh, so often uh, we find one bit explains the other. I think when we look at the First Fruits Harvest Festival, we can see some deep truths. The uh, Gospels record for us that Jesus was crucified for our sins 
at Passover. Passover was the great festival of the uh, Old Testament Jews. Uh, It was the festival that recalled Israel's deliverance from uh, death and destruction in Egypt. In fact, actually, if we uh, work it out, Jesus was crucified, he was put to death on the same day that in the temple the Passover lambs were being killed in preparation for the feasts. Uh, John the Baptist said that he truly was the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. We can start to see it, can't we? All coming together. Uh, if that was so, then it means that the Sunday when he rose, that first Easter Sunday in the Jewish calendar, was this first fruits festival. Isn't that extraordinary? I don't think that's an accident. God's sovereign work in time to bring that together. It's why, if you know your scriptures, St. Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 15. It wasn't some phrase he just chanced on. He recognized that the first fruits harvest festival that we read in Leviticus pointed to the work of the Lord Jesus uh, at Easter. When Jesus rose again to life on that first Easter Sunday, it was proof that he had defeated death. Death could not hold him as it had claimed to. And because he was the first to triumph over death, he is the first fruits. He is the, uh, if we like, the, the, the first of the harvest that is to come. He's the guarantee that there is hope of life beyond the grave. And all who trust in him this morning can know that hope of life beyond the grave. We can know that, like Jesus, we can rise to new life again. This world is not all that there is. The best is yet to come, because God has claimed us in Christ Jesus to be his own. Fear of death always stalks our world. It always has done. And it still does. Just this week, I, I read on the BBC News website, and if you saw this, of uh, that uh, tragic story of a young girl who'd been cyrogenically frozen uh, in some hope by her, her parents that at some point in the future they might find a cure for the illness that had killed her and she could enjoy life again. I, my heart broke as I read it. They are people who have no hope. Uh, Dr. Johnson, the great uh, dictionary compiler, apparently used to say that his whole life had been one long effort not to have to think about dying. For all his achievements, that was how he summed it up. It's pretty sad, isn't it? Really. The glorious truth of the first fruits harvest is that that is not how it has to be. The best is yet to come. Jesus, the first fruits, has defeated death. And he one day will claim all who trust in him as his own. And he will reap his harvest, his harvest for eternity. In life and in death, God claims what is his. It's right and good, isn't it, to celebrate all that God has given us. Lots of things, lots of good things. We're so fortunate. But it's even more right to realize that he has claimed us from death. Death that was a result of our sin, came into the world because of our doing, And it's the death that we deserved. He has claimed us for his own. And one day we can look forward to his harvest home and being part of his new people. Jesus himself said to me, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, this first fruits harvest festival points us to life in eternity with him. We are his and we always will be.
Well, let's look at the second half, shall we, of uh, our passage. And I want to uh, look at the, uh, the Pentecost Harvest Festival. The Pentecost Harvest Festival. And I think the Pentecost Harvest Festival tells us that God gives. God gives. Uh, Israel was not content uh, with uh, one harvest festival. They had to have another one. Uh, Fifty days after the first fruits harvest festival, uh, God instructed them to hold another one. Uh, our Bible calls it here the, uh, the Feast or Festival of Weeks. Uh, but later on in the Bible, it became better known as the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, it was so cool because of the, the idea it held 50 days after the first one. That's where you get it from. It's uh, in, the, in the Greek, Pentecost. Uh, what set these two festivals apart? What, what, what differentiated them, as it were? Well, the big difference was that the first fruits festival celebrated the first signs of the harvest. Uh, the, the festival of Pentecost was right at the end of the harvest, when the uh, Israelites had finished gathering in the harvest. It, it sort of looked back, as it were. Uh, the first fruits was looking forward to all that God was going to give. The uh, Pentecost uh, festival looked back on all that God had given. Uh, and if we read it through, we can see some of the details, can't we, of what they were to do. Uh, once again, they held a bank holiday. Uh, there were two loaves that were, were baked with yeast, and the very, very best flour they could lay their hands on. Uh, they uh, took those to God. They'd offer them, along with uh, seven burnt offerings, um, a grain offering, a sin offering, and a fellowship offering as well. It's a lot of offerings, isn't it? <laughs> this is a mega celebration of God's goodness. It doesn't get much bigger than this in the life of ancient Israel. They were looking at the harvest, that, that tangible sign of God's goodness to them, and were giving thanks with everything that they had. Uh, it's really important as well, I think, in passing, we shouldn't miss the footnote that there is in uh, verse 22. I don't know if you caught that just as it was being read. That footnote uh, the Bible tells us, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your fields or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. Uh, even in the midst of the people's celebration, they had a duty to remember the poor and the dispossessed. Mercy goes hand in hand with gratitude. Those who'd been shown mercy should be the first to show it to others. It's absolutely right, isn't it? As we bring our gifts to to harvest, to celebrate what God has given us, that we in turn seek to bless those who don't have what we have. Absolutely right. And honouring that principle. And yet, just as with the First Fruits Festival, uh, this Pentecost Harvest Festival acted as, as a kind of sign to something even deeper, uh, a deeper truth that found its fulfilment in the work of the Lord Jesus. Pentecost was not just a time for celebrating harvest in the Jewish uh, um, calendar. Uh, the Jews also associated Pentecost with God's giving of his law. Uh, so uh, in Exodus, we're told that 50 days after leaving Egypt, remember, 50 days, you can see the parallel, can't you? 50 days after the uh, first fruits festival. Fifty days after leaving uh, Egypt, uh, Moses had been given God's law to the people on Mount Sinai. Uh, It was the law that showed them God's character. It showed them what he expected of them, how he expected them to live. 
Uh, and the problem is that uh, as time went on through the Old Testament, it becomes very, very clear that God's people can't match up to the law. Sometimes they have a better effort than other times. But really, it's just one long downward spiral. It just gets worse and worse to the point where actually they end up being exiled. They get ch- chucked out of the land, they get taken out of the land and exiled uh, as, uh, as a result of their disobedience. Uh, I guess if I'd been uh, God, I might have been tempted to give up on his people. Gave them the law, the good things, the, the law that told them how to behave, and yet they couldn't keep, keep it. And yet, wonderfully, as we go through the Old Testament, we see that God isn't like that. He doesn't give up on his people. In fact, actually, he promises that he's going to do something else. He's going to do something uh, that actually is even more wonderful than they can imagine. This is what he says through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31. He says this, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. That law... The law that they couldn't obey by themselves. The law that was just a burden to them. It was like a heavy pack on their backs. was going to be put inside their hearts. They were going to be able to keep it. It was going to energise them and drive them uh, like it should do. How could that happen? Again, God explains to us, and this is through the words of another prophet, Ezekiel. This is chapter 36. He says this. God says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Uh, God is going to give his people a heart transplant. He's going to transform their hearts. He's going to send his spirit uh, to live inside them that they might follow his laws just as he had always longed for them to do. And guess what? Those promises were wonderfully fulfilled at another Pentecost, at Pentecost Harvest Festival, 50 days after Jesus rose again. 50 days yet again. Uh, We can read about that in Acts chapter 2. God gave his people the gift that they had been longing for. He poured out his Holy Spirit on them uh, to transform their hearts and their lives, to help them to live for him in a way that they never could by themselves. And as the sickle of the Holy Spirit fell on those people gathered, God reaped a harvest for his glory. We're told it was a harvest of 3,000 people who came to put their trust in him and be baptised, and who will be there, we trust, when he gathers in his harvest at the end of time. Uh, Not so long ago, my son was given a very, very generous present by uh, some relatives of ours. It was a very expensive present, actually a very nice present, but as is so often the way, uh, he was far more interested in the packaging that it came in. Probably if you've had young children, you'll know this experience. Uh, and we really couldn't get him to appreciate the presence that he'd actually been given for quite some time. He now does appreciate it, I think, just about. But, uh, but the, uh, the wrapping paper and the packaging was, uh, was far more interesting. If he'd been able to write a thank you letter, I think I know what he would have given thanks for. It would have been the wrapping paper <laughs> and not the presents. Uh, And I wonder if there's a bit of a temptation for us to do that at harvest. It's right that we give thanks to God for his daily provision of our needs. Absolutely, of course it's right. It's from him. Uh, It's not something that we deserve, but he is good, and he gives that to us. But actually, it's also very easy to miss that even greater gift that he has given us, that the Old Testament harvest actually looked forward to and pointed to. 
It's the gift of his Holy Spirit in our hearts that you and I can live for him in a way that by ourselves we we never could. Uh, We can please him, we can walk in his ways uh, just as we were meant to. And that gift of God's Holy Spirit, that gift at Pentecost, is secured by the work of the Lord Jesus, uh, who died, who rose again, and who promised his spirit to his people when he was ascended. The God who gives us his daily bread is the God who graciously gives us himself, his Holy Spirit. Uh, recently, I, I came across this, this quote, and I think it's incredibly powerful. I want to share it with you, if I may. This is what it says. Before us is the state of the Christian church. Her weakness, her lethargy, with a world on fire and a world going to hell. We are the body of Christ. But what do we need? The power, the Pentecost power. Those words could have been written yesterday, I think. They weren't. They were written, I think, 60 years ago, about, by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. I don't know about you, but as we gaze out on a world without Christ, a world that is without hope, that's putting trust in cyrogenics to do something that it can never possibly do, when we look on our own church, crippled by infighting, lack of vision, lukewarmness, indifference, sin, can we doubt that we are in need of a fresh outpouring of that Holy Spirit that set the earth ablaze 2,000 years ago, that first Pentecost. The God who claims us as his own, the God who gives us so much, graciously promises us his Holy Spirit to live for him. What are we to do? The end of the quote goes like this. This is what uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones says. Shall we not, with one accord mind and spirit in these coming days, wait upon him and pray that again that he may open the windows of heaven and shower down upon us the Holy Spirit in mighty reviving power. What better prayer to pray as we are at this Harvest Festival and remember all that God has done for us and will do. Can I invite you to stand? I think that's a prayer that we could all pray. I can pray it for myself. I think we can pray it corporately. As a church, we can pray it for the church in our land, in our city, and in our nation. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us, we pray, by this, uh, the law that seems so arcane and yet has so much to say to us. Thank you so much that you are a God who claims us as your own. Because you rose from the dead, we know that eternity can be spent with you. And thank you so much that you promised to give us all that we need to live for you. And we pray now that you would come in power by your Spirit. Uh, Refresh us, revive us, we pray, that we might live for you, that we might speak of your good works, and that we might reap the harvest for eternity. In your name we pray. Amen.